heaven, the home that we all long to enter. And yet, as, I, as we talk about heaven, I think a lot of times we talk about the wrong things. We talk about the streets of gold. We talk about the no tears. And of course, that's awesome. But I would like to posit to you today that there's really only one thing that really matters about heaven. And it's this. The Lord is there. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation, sorry, Revelation 21, verse 3. In Revelation 21, we get the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're told, Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there, and that we are longing to be where God is. If you look in uh, a few verses later in verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That the center of the city, the, the temple, the light, all of it is provided by God. God is what this whole thing is about. And being in the presence of God, being where the Lord is, that's what we're fighting for. And I, I'd like to say, I believe this is the story of the entire Bible, actually. I think that all of the Bible is a story of trying to get back into the presence of God, that from the time that Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit and were banished from the garden, that there, was, there has been the essence of those who are trying to follow God, that they are trying to get back into the presence of God. And so we're going to trace that theme for a little bit, because if what we are longing for is heaven, if that is the ultimate reward, then we need to understand why it's the ultimate reward, why all the Bible is leading up to this idea that we want to be where God is. And then we're going to come back and we're going to ask, okay, so if all the Bible is pointing toward this, if that's the whole story, then why? Like, why do I care about being in the presence of God? What's so significant about that? So those are the two points in our lesson today. So we're going to talk about first this journey back into the presence of God. So if you'll turn all the way back, to Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 2, of course, we know is the, the man, God creates man and woman. And here we see Adam and Eve in the garden with God. And we see that in chapter 3, that God comes and he's walking, this is in verse 8, in the garden in the cool of the day. But this seems to be what happens in the garden. And yet in Genesis 3, we know before verse 8 that the serpent comes and tempts Eve and she takes the fruit and she gives it to Adam. And so they have sinned. And so as a result of this, when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That they understood that sin separated them from God. That because of their sin, that there was a danger 
about the presence of God. And so they, uh, so they hid themselves because they needed to be away because it was scary. And so we have this story. They're banished from the garden. They're no longer where God is walking. And of course, God still talks to them just as he talks to Abraham and some other people. But still, there's a sense in which they are no longer where God is. And as I said, the rest of the Bible is trying to get back there. And so skipping over uh, some really rich ideas on this with uh, you know, God walking and, and talking to Abraham in human form or uh, Bethel or uh, Jacob wrestling with, an, like all, skipping over all of these things, I, I want to move then to Exodus chapter 24. So in Exodus we get the Mount Sinai. They are at Mount Sinai. And while they are there, there's the presence of God on the mountain. And God tells the people, look, this mountain is terrifying. And I am terrifying. And my presence is dangerous to you. And if you come into my presence unclean, this is going to be a problem for you. And so Moses and his and the elders that go up on the mountain, they have to prepare themselves. And, and so they go through all of these, these rituals to, to cleanse themselves, but still, they can't quite enter the presence of God. And as we get to the end of the book of Exodus, the, one of the last verses in Exodus tells us Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That The glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle made it, Moses unable to enter it. And yet, as the book of Numbers begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. That Moses has moved from outside the tent to inside the tent. And you ask, well, what happened? What caused that change that Moses was able to move from outside of the tent where God was, but now into, in some ways, the presence of God. And that is, of course, the book of Leviticus. This is a book that is ultimately about how do we cleanse ourselves so that we can enter the presence of God without it being dangerous to us, and B, how do we keep God here among our nation and uh, not uh, striking us down for our sin. And so as we move throughout the Bible, we have the idea of the tabernacle and then the temple where God is dwelling. And God's people can come to the temple and they can cleanse themselves and they can come before the presence of God on the, you know, three times a year and at those times where it was necessary for them to come before the presence of God. And this was good for them because they wanted to be in the presence of God and God wanted to be in their presence as well. This is what they wanted. And yet we find a problem occurs. The problem occurs around the time of Ezekiel. Well, it really began a lot longer before that. But in Ezekiel, we find that the people of God have been incredibly sinful. And as a result of this sin, as a result of their continued disobedience, God picks up and leaves. And this is the second problem. That how do you enter the presence of God when the presence of God is no longer at the temple? And so there's, there's this entire problem throughout all of the Babylonian captivities. How do we get to where God is? How do we appear before him three times a year? How do we offer our sacrifices? Where is God? How do we get into God's presence? But luckily, at the end of Ezekiel, we get this statement. 
Ezekiel has this temple vision. He sees this, uh, this town, this city where God is. And we're told of the city, the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there, which of course is the title of our sermon. That what Ezekiel saw is a city where God was. That's where they wanted to be. And in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 43, God's, vision, God's uh, presence comes and it comes back from where it was and it rests on the temple again. And this is the hope. This is what they were waiting for. And yet, when they get out of captivity, when they return, they come back and they rebuild the temple. But they don't get what happened in uh, Exodus, where the presence of God came and sat on the tabernacle. They don't see what Solomon saw when the presence of God came and filled the temple. There is no cloud. Now, of course, God tells them in Haggai that he is with them, and we will talk about that, uh, and that, that is significant, but there's still a sense in which there is, there's something missing. Where, where is God? How do we get into his presence? That is a great question, and one that we find sort of in different words, asked by a woman in John chapter 4. So we're going to turn over to John chapter 4 now. John 4. So this is, of course, the story of the woman at the well. And she's talking with Jesus, and in verse 19 of John chapter 4, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I'm going to zone in on this last verse here, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What does that mean? God is spirit, therefore we must worship him in spirit. What? And I think perhaps Stephen in Acts 7 comes the, the best to explaining this very succinctly. He says, the most high does not dwell in houses made with hands. Like, we understand that God's presence filled the temple, but also we, we clearly understand that God is this enormous intergalactic entity. Like, how is it possible that he, a spirit being living in another dimension, can inhabit the temple? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so God's presence was there, but it wasn't really, there was this, there's an incompleteness about God's presence in the temple. There always has been. And so Stephen points this out. He says, if we're going to approach God, it's not going to be by coming to a temple. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 4, that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If you're going to approach, say, an idol, or maybe you just worship another human being, you can easily do that because, you know, I know where that person is. I walk up to them. I give them stuff. They can be bribed with physical things. But God doesn't really inhabit a physical space. God doesn't really need our physical things. God is spirit. And if we're going to approach God, then we need to approach him on spirit terms. And through Jesus, we are allowed to do this in three distinct ways. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. And in Hebrews 10... 
uh, we're told based on the fact that Jesus came, he died for our sins, he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down enthroned at the right hand of God. Because of this, we read in Ezekiel or in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, based on the fact that God is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So just as Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we must worship God in truth the correct way, but in spirit by coming to him and bringing him the only thing that we have truly to offer, which is our hearts, a pure life, uh, letting his spirit live in us and guide us and make us into the kind of people that we need to be. And so we're told here, that we approach God based on the forgiveness and the intercession of Jesus by having hearts that are sprinkled clean. And so we can approach God in some ways in that way. Also, during this life, we can, we can be in the presence of God because God sent his presence down to us. That, of course, Jesus came, but then Jesus left. And when Jesus left, the Father sent a helper. And he sent the Holy Spirit. And through baptism, we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we are, again, in some ways, in the presence of God. And so we have both of these essences, the spirit of God living in us, and also we can approach God through prayer, through worship, with a clean heart. But again, we understand that we're here on earth. God is not here on earth, or at least he is, but not in the perfect way that he is in heaven, not in the perfect way that he will be at the end of times when heaven and earth, the new heaven and new earth come and they're combined and The dwelling place of God is with man. The Lord is there. That's what this has all been leading up to. That is this whole story. But then that raises a question then. Okay, if the whole Bible is about getting back into the presence of God and approaching God (coughs) through clean heart and having God dwell in us and eventually, finally and fully being together with God in the new heaven and the new earth, what why? Like, why, why is that so significant? And that leads us to our second point. And that is that the only thing that makes us special is the presence of God. And this is an important note for us here. Because the thing about Israel is that they felt like they were special. You can read in, like, uh, Romans chapter 9, for example, where They have the law. They have all of this sacred history, and they felt like they were special because of that. But the only thing that ever made the Jews special was the presence of God. And the same is true for us today. We can go out in the world, and of course, we want to be separate from the world because we we know we have the wisdom of God through this, this book that the world... I mean, it's a constant churn of nations rising and falling. There's nothing concrete about it. We need to be separate from the world because only with God, only in God's people, can we find the security that we need in this life. And yet, sometimes we can seek to be distinct from the world by doing good deeds, or we can seek to be distinct from the world by just being different. But it's not being different. It's not having Bible knowledge. It's not doing the right thing. All of those things do distinguish us. 
Um, but they only distinguish us because they come from one core, and that is the presence of God. And when God is with us, that's what makes us unique. That's what makes us special. That's the only thing that ever made the people of Israel special. And we need to recall this because we can get focused on doing things, on looking different. But what we really need to be concerned with is the heart, is having God's presence with us. And if God is with us, then we will be distinct, then we will be strong, then we will be victorious. But if not, then none of that's going to happen. We'll go back and trace this theme again. Uh, This time, not back to Genesis. We're going to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. So in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to uh, Moses in the burning bush, and God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to talk to him. I want you to tell him to let my people go, because I've heard the affliction, and I need you to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 11, But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I will send you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That God says, yes, Moses, I understand that you are nobody. Like you can't do this on your own. But guess what? I will be with you. That is why you will succeed. And as we skip on to Exodus chapter 23, we find that God fulfills his promise, that he breaks the people of Israel out of Egypt, that he leads them out, he brings them to the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 23, he tells them of the conquest, his plan for them to inhabit the land of Canaan. And again, we see that the presence of God is the defining feature. So Exodus chapter 23, picking up in verse 20, he says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He says, I will send an angel before you, an angel who has my name. So the angel of the Lord representing God to go before you. His presence with you is going to be what is going to allow you to defeat your enemies. And I will be with you. I will be an enemy to your enemies if you only listen to me. I am on your side, and you will be successful because of that. But it doesn't take long before Israel messes it up. We get to Exodus 32, uh, and in Exodus 32, there's, of course, the golden calf narrative, and God says, okay, look, I'm done. My presence is leaving you, and you're just going to have to go without me. And Moses says, God, don't do that. Because if you leave, there's, there's nothing left. This is what Moses says. And he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He says, the fact that you're with us That is the distinguishing feature. That is what gives us success. And if you're not with us, then don't even bother bringing us up because it's not going to work. You're the only thing that makes us special. You're the only thing that makes us succeed. And then, as the story continues, turn over to Numbers chapter 14. So they have these these great successes. I mean, God, God is with them. 
And yet somehow they forget. They forget what happened in Exodus 14 when God fought against the Egyptians and destroyed them. When the presence of God, you know, confused the chariots and when God poured the, the, the seas back on the Egyptians, they forgot about that. They forgot about uh, Exodus 17 where God, you know, had Moses raise up his hands. And when Moses' hands were raised, then God was with his people and they defeated their enemies and it was crazy. It was awesome. We get to Numbers 14, and this is where they go spy out the land. And the spies, they enter the land, they send 12 spies, and they all come back and they say, this land is awesome. It has amazing stuff. But 10 of them are like, there is no way we can take them. And the other two, Joshua and Caleb, of course, are saying, yes, God will be with us. If God is with us, we can do anything. But the 10 spies they have the majority with them, and everyone's like, ah, there's no way we can do this. This is, this is terrible. And God gets really angry, and Moses gets really angry, and Joshua and Caleb get really angry. because like, how could you miss this? How could you forget what happened? How could you miss the fact that if God is with us, we cannot be stopped? God is with us. So God speaks to the people. He speaks to Moses, and he says, I'm really angry at these people. And as a result of this, as a result of their unfaithfulness, you you're still going to enter the land because that was my plan, but not you guys. It's going to be your next generation. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as punishment. And then God kills the 10 spies. And then we read in verse 39. When Moses told these words to the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the height of the hill country saying, here we are, we'll go to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will not succeed, do not go up for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor the of the Lord, nor Moses deported out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So we see if God's presence had been with them, they could have done anything. But they presumed to go up on the mountain. They said, oh, you know, you said this, but I'm sure, I'm sure you don't really mean that. We're just going to, we're, we're repenting now. Let's, we're, we're going up. And God says, no, it's too late. My presence is not going with you. And so they try and fight the, the enemies without God's help, and they get slaughtered. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it, during the wilderness years, they have amazing things. They defeat Sihon and Og, and they get to the land of, his, uh, to the land of Canaan. And then they enter the land of Canaan, and they have amazing conquests. They beat Jericho. They have some trouble at Ai, but then they beat Ai, and they keep, in, they keep going in, and they're defeating all their enemies, and the enemies are terrified. I mean, you... See, you can read uh, like Rahab when she's talking to the spies. She says, look, we've heard the Lord is with you. We don't want to mess with you because you're powerful because the Lord is with you. And yet the people forgot. And as we turn to Judges chapter 6, we'll see that in the time of the judges, the people forgot God. They left God. And just as they were, they were supposed to take the land, but they didn't do it. And so God said, as, as he said way before they were supposed to take the land, he said, if you don't take the land, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, then these people, these nations that you were supposed to take out that you didn't, they're going to be a continual thorn in your side. And lo and behold, they are. And in uh, Judges chapter 6, we read of Midian 
Uh, they're just a terrible uh, scourge on the Israelites. But then God calls Gideon. And we read in verse 12 of Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So we see God says, I am with you. And Gideon says, God, I'm not really sure that you are. Because if you were with us, then this wouldn't be happening. And God says, I will be with you. Go strike the Midianites. And we read, this is an amazing battle. 300 men of Gideon, they defeat 135,000 Amalekites and um, the other Canaanites who are with them. I don't remember. Um, that's, that's, that's crazy. And yet that, that doesn't, shouldn't surprise us because if God is with them, then they're unstoppable. God's presence with them is what makes them special. But again, they keep forgetting it. We get to the kings and uh, Saul God's presence was with him, and Saul did awesome things, and then Saul started to forget God, and then God, the presence of God left Saul, and it landed on David, and then David had the presence of God, and then David did awesome things, and then the presence of God continued to be with them, and then you get to uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the, the nation splits, and God tells both of them, look, if you follow my path, if you do what I say, then I'll be with you. It's going to be great. You're going to have an amazing nation, and yet they don't listen to him. They don't heed the words, and the Israelites get taken by the Assyrians and the Judites. Uh, the Babylon is, is right at their door. And we get to the point of Ezekiel, where we were before, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're preaching about the same time. And they both have this rather difficult message. Uh, Ezekiel watches in Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood up over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings, mounted up from the earth before my eyes, and they went out. So Ezekiel watches the presence of God leave the city of God, the house of God. And Jeremiah tells them, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That the people of Judah, they were like, there is no way that the adversaries can defeat us. There's no way that we're going to lose because, look, this is the city of God. This is the house of God. We got God on our side. And these prophets are saying, no, no, you don't because you have sinned. You messed up. And now God left. And guess what? The only thing that ever made you special was that God was with you. And if God is not with you, then you will be defeated. And so as we continue on, you know, they get taken into captivity, and then Ezekiel has his vision, and there's this hope that one day God's presence will be with his people again, that God will return. And now we get to us, to the New Testament, and we are told we are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. That we have the presence of God within us. It it distinguishes us from the world. It gives us power. It makes us different. It makes us special. But just like the people of Israel, the temple of God does not have to be where the presence of God lives. He can leave at any time. And if we are sinful, 
if we do not heed his warnings, then we are in danger of losing the presence of God. And so we have to remember, again, it's not the law, it's, it's not anything that made these people special. It was just God. And if we lose the presence of God, we've lost everything. And so the lesson then has a twofold uh, encouragement for us. First, that we should long to be in the presence of God, that that's what heaven is all about. And if that's what heaven is all about, is being in the presence of God, being with him in the, the true city of God with the people of God forever, then we've got some preparations to do. Because just in the same way that if you know you're going to marry somebody and be with them for the rest of your life, then you have this whole dating phase where that's what you're waiting for. And if you're anticipating being with someone for the rest of your life, then it would behoove you to get to know them, to get excited about the hope of being with that person. In the same way, we have a hope of being forever in the presence of God. And the more we know God, the more that's going to mean to us, the more special that's going to be. And so if we know that our hope is being in the presence of God, we got to get to know God. But second is that we've got to remember that it's just the presence of God that makes us special. And so as we go about doing what we do as Christians, like, of course, we need to be focusing on, on trying to do good things, on trying to be kind. But what we need to focus on above all else is having the presence of God within us, opening our hearts that the Holy Spirit can fill us, can transform us, can make us what God wants us to be. And if we do that, then we will have power to do amazing things because it's not our power, it's God's power. And God's power is unlimited. It makes us incredibly strong because we are working on God's side. And so I hope that this week and for the rest of your life that you guys can, can hope, can, can recall these ideas and yearn for the presence of God and put that in your hearts. Uh, may you have a good week. May you enjoy class and may God be with you. Thank you so much.